0: Hi, my name is
1: Evan, and I use he, him pronouns. And my name is Ian, and I use they, them pronouns. And we are the, the Baker Street, Street Regulars. Regulars, a podcast where we are taking a queer magnifying glass to the Sherlock Holmes canon and its many adaptations.
0: Hi, Lauren. Welcome back to Baker Street Regulars.
2: Hi, thank you for having me back. Uh, I'm Lauren Grace Thompson. She, her, hers. And I'm I'm so excited to be back. We're happy to have you back.
0: You were on our last episode talking about your incredible podcast, Fox and Stallion. So today we're talking about BBC Sherlock. Oh. I wanted to have you on this episode because we had a conversation about this show. And I realized that mm-hmm. you, like me, have a lot to say about this show.
2: Yes. Yes, I definitely do. I have such a such a strange relationship with this, this little show. And I think so do you. Like, we had such a great conversation, and I'm very excited to continue it.
1: So my question, because this was my first time watching this show. Like, I had heard about it, you know, I, I think anybody who has friends or know people who have watched doctor who they've also watched sherlock so mm-hmm. i had a lot of friends who watched doctor who would who would also mention sherlock so i remember like mm-hmm. in college like hearing about it a lot but i was never like i'm gonna watch it it was just like i'm too busy doing my theater studies and staying up till three in the morning write- writing papers so i wanted to ask for you two at what like points in your life did the show come out like what what were your feelings on the show when it originally came out. I'll just fold in our fast facts here, which is that the
0: show began airing in 2010. Yeah. They did four seasons of three episodes each. The episodes were each an hour and a half long. I think I had a friend who introduced it to me within the first year that the episode was out. It was yeah. like, you have to check out this cool new thing. And I pulled it up on a laptop. We watched mm-hmm. it. I was on Tumblr in 2013. <laughs> and there was this thing on oh, Tumblr. Oh, were you now? <laughs> there was this thing on Tumblr. I was, t-
2: I was too, it's fine.
0: Yeah, I'm still on Tumblr. There was this thing on Tumblr in Same. 2013 <laughs> called Super Who which is a combined fandom for Doctor Who, Sherlock, and the TV show Supernatural. and The three horsemen of the apocalypse, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> never, really. I felt so much pressure to get into Supernatural because it was part of Super Who and I liked the other two shows, but I never... It never That one never clicked for me.
2: Supernatural is one of my original hyperfixations. I have seen all 15 seasons. I watched the first five when they were coming out. And then during the pandemic, I had a work from home job, like a data entry job that I could just do on my laptop. They play it on TNT every day, every weekday from like 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. And so I would just tune in during that time, do my data entry and watch. Again, they would show them in order. So I watched. That's how I watched the the latter episodes of Supernatural. And then Ian, my Ian, would occasionally walk in, be baffled by what was going on on the TV. I would laugh at him. And then we would move on with our day. (laughs) So yeah, I unfortunately have experience with all three of those, of the Super Hulock triumvirate. So
0: (laughs) how did you first get into Sherlock?
2: I think, I don't remember who recommended it, but I think very similarly to you, it was very early. Only the first season was out. And I don't remember who recommended it, but it was definitely around the time that they were airing the episodes on Masterpiece Theater on PBS and i had vaguely known that it like from kind of i don't even remember where on the internet but i remember seeing kind of buzz about this new adaptation of sherlock that was getting very positive uh, attention and so i jumped on right about then so very early in it coming to america mm. It was when I, I jumped on, and by the time we got to the Great Game, which is the third episode of the first season, we watched it live when it aired in the U- the US. And it was—I don't know about you, Evan, but like I, I don't know what it was about the show, but I think I, I latched onto it pretty quickly. So, I, and I would have been—it would have been either my senior year of high school or my freshman year of college. Mm. So, one of those times of change where I—I I had like you know had a Sherlock Holmes fan experience, and I was younger. But it was laying kind of dormant within me. And so I think that my brain was looking for something to latch onto in that world. And this kind of hit at the perfect time for me. Mm-hmm. And it is a very flashy show. It is very like impressive. And also, none of us knew who I think most of these actors were. And so it was my first time seeing all of these, these actors who would go on to become really huge and are very talented. And I think that was part of the shine and the attraction of it. And i was just kind so of enamored.
1: Now we all know Benadryl Cumberbund. <laughs>
2: Yes, we do. Yes, we do. And all of his names. All All of his his many, many names. (laughs) But yeah, yeah, I don't know if you had a similar experience.
1: I had started watching it
0: uh, fairly early and I was following along as somebody who was interested in like TV. And then I think when in that 2013 Tumblr phase, (laughs) I was going through a moment where I was like, for some reason, I'm attracted to stories about people who might be gay. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I don't know why. And like, and like specifically stories about people who are like secretly gay. So there are all these people on Tumblr in 2013 who were like, here's why Sherlock is actually a giant code. And this is why it's, it's actually leading up to a big gay reveal. And I was like, oh, that sounds nice. I'll get very invested in that. And I don't know why.
2: Well, I would also argue that I do kind of know why. Because I do think that they were... If you were around, they were feeding into it. Oh, I also think yeah. this show knows that that audience was there and both makes it very clear that they hate them and also is feeding them rabidly like it is it is a very strange weird parasitic relationship that that they have with their fandom but also like weirdly smart yeah yeah Yeah. this is this is kind of one of the one of the textbook baitings i think it was but like while it was happening because Stephen moffat is so good especially with doctor who like creating these long-form mysteries like Mm -hmm. And making you think everything is going to pay off and just throwing you mystery after mystery, there is kind of like a leeway that you give it. And that we all did, I think, when we were in it Mm -hmm. and thinking like, oh, he's a storyteller. He's talking about this four season plan that he has. I'm sure that that's leading to something. And so we gave it so much more faith than it deserved But because I was also in those circles and I was also you know, a big part of the fandom. And I remember when the second season and the third season were coming out, I was like on online places and I watched them when they aired in the UK because they had like the streams online where you could like chat, like live chat with people where someone would be streaming it. And like when the Reichenbach Fall aired, I was going to like different because one of them went down in the middle of the episode and then I was pulling up another one and like I wanted to experience this communally with the fandom and that was such a big part of it. And between seasons two and three, when when there's a huge mystery that they leave off, they encouraged us coming up with theories and, and really fed into that, like, they wanted that from the fans. And so it really was kind of the perfect storm to create the exact type of, like, hyper fixation that this show ended up, like, creating in people. So I think we had, it seems like we had very similar experiences.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. then there's me
2: yeah and you escaped it thank goodness you made it out
1: <laughs> i i think my honestly my hyper at that time was just theater and drag race and it still is so nothing's changed I love that did you have friends who watched it or- yeah i had a couple friends who watched it but like i was so like okay cool click drag race <laughs> or like all the all the bootlegs online that are now slime tutorials that would be on youtube i'd be like click let's watch this
2: yes i love a slime tutorial so much
1: me too bless well
0: let's we're talking about two episodes today we're looking at the first episodes of season one and two Mm -hmm. so the first episode Mm -hmm. of season one is a study in pink named after the first sherlock Holmes story a study in scarlet Mm -hmm. (laughs) so like study in Scarlet, this episode introduces us to John and Sherlock. They meet for the first time, they move in together, and they solve a mystery together for the first time. Mm -hmm. The episode starts, like the story starts, by introducing Watson, because he's our perspective character in this episode. And there's something that I really like about this episode, which is that this is the first time we've seen in our exploration a work give Watson a character arc. I I think that's really notable. In terms of the adaptations we've dealt with so far, Watson is often just also present while things are happening. Mm. And in this mm-hmm. episode, there's a character arc about his PTSD, about why he might be suited for Sherlock or not suited for Sherlock over the course of the episode. And I really appreciate that.
2: I, yeah, I would agree with that. That was one of the things that I that I re- really liked about it when I first came to it, is I liked that it, it had time for both halves of the relationship and that it remembered that Watson is our point of view character. And I, I also think like that is very much how Study in Scarlet starts. Is we meet Watson before we meet Holmes. And I like that the show has time for that and the, the lead up into their meeting.
0: Yeah, they, I think they spend a lot of time here establishing these characters in a way that feels good to me. Mm-hmm. And they stopped doing this at some point. This is the first and last time Watson has a character arc in this show, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. But the character arc that he has in this episode is that he is a veteran from war. He uh, has PTSD, he's seeing a psychiatrist, and he has a limp who has to walk with a cane. And Mm -hmm. when he meets Sherlock, Sherlock diagnoses the limp as being psychosomatic Mm -hmm. and is proven right because he's Sherlock. And there's this odd psychology about Watson like craving the battlefield in some sense Mm. and missing it, which is an interesting idea.
2: Which is a a different thing to lay on top of the canon that is not something that, in my experience at least, has been particularly engaged with. Mm-hmm. in that way this idea that that he likes the danger of the situations and that that is perhaps something that attracts him to holmes is something that i think is quite interesting as you pointed out very astutely like they they don't really go on to engage with that in many meaningful ways as the show goes on they sort of mention it but by the time you get to to specifically season 4 And even season three, you do see a reversion of Watson to either the damsel or someone who is pretty much just there to give quips. By the time we are ending the show, it truly does feel like he is stalled. And he is either a bargaining chip for Sherlock or he's there to, you know, to quip or to remind Sherlock of the wrongs that he's done pretty incessantly. And I actually think what's really fascinating is that this show is one of the only adaptations of Holmes that, I, that I've that i ever seen, where I end the series and I'm actively rooting against the two of them, which mm-hmm. is a feat because I, I love Holmes and Watson. I love them so much. I think their relationship is great in canon, but where the place that they end it, it just kind of keeps growing incredibly toxic and very strange and very adversarial so it's been really interesting to kind of because ian and i my ian and i have been re-watching the end of the show and then after that i went back and re-watched the pilot and it's really fascinating to see where the origin where where they're trying to do something with the character it doesn't always work but it at least is an attempt to engage with the canon mm-hmm. and yeah. then they kind of abandon that and forget about him and and cease to try to say anything interesting about the character of Watson, which was one of the draws of the show. Mm-hmm. Because so many versions of Holmes are just using him as the point of view character, just using him as an audience surrogate. And I think that that Sherlock is actually not just trying to make him an audience surrogate. And that's one of the most interesting things about it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, And I will say, Martin Freeman does a really great mm-hmm. job with the character. I love his performance. And with the writing. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking about all the other Watsons that we watch, and I we really haven't had a Watson like him like martin freeman's watson yeah. and I, I i would say like maybe ben kingsley in terms of like intelligence mm-hmm. and like maybe even a little nigel bruce in the huh mm-hmm. it's it's like a nice marriage between the two yeah. i feel mm-hmm. which actually which actually, actually you, I think fits watson very well
2: have you done or are you going to do the the guy Ritchie robert denny jr holmes
1: We are. We are. Because
2: I I would be interested to see what you think of that, Watson, because I think that they're actually doing some quite similar things in those, in that particular iteration of the character. I would say that's the closest comp that I've seen in a fellow adaptation of a Watson.
0: Yeah. And and they come from similar moments. We were talking in a previous episode Mm -hmm. about looking forward to the 2010s versions of Watson, because I think that that there's more effort to make him a character, which I appreciate. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) after the title sequence we're introduced to the the murders that have been happening. So we see these shots of people getting separated from groups. We see people dying mysteriously. We cut to a press conference where we meet Lestrade and he describes the events as linked suicides. you have a reaction?
1: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we'll get to why I have a reaction later. It's All kind right. of my overarching feeling of the episodes mm-hmm. that we watch and okay. probably how I feel about how I would feel about the series as a whole. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but we'll get to it.
2: I have a feeling I know where you're going. So I okay. and I I'm interested to talk to you about it.
0: During the press conference the members of the press get mass text messages from an unknown number negating things that Lestrade is saying presumably from Sherlock. And the the the, the trait that I guess we're introducing here is that he's a know-it-all, but it also shows him having a degree of like interest in ongoing murder investigations that Mm -hmm. I don't think he has going after this point that he's like somehow bugged this room (laughs) and also wants the press to know that he has opinions and he's making Lestrade look bad. Like there's a lot of character traits this introduces that I don't think this show totally carries through on.
2: I would agree with that. I think in the second episode that we're talking about, Scandal and Belgravia, he has an aversion to talking to the press. Yeah. And is very much in, like, head down, do my job, I don't care about the press mode. Yeah. That I don't think is an indication of any character development. I think that it's just, they wanted to establish this thing about himself that is not followed through on. Mm-hmm. Which actually, what they're establishing here, there is grounds for it in the canon. There are moments in, in even that first story where, because he thinks that the yard will get credit for something that he did, he like genuinely for a second is like, maybe I just don't do it like he he does care about the credit and he does care about being right publicly because he really does like praise. I think that's something that is very real about the character, but it is it is an interesting intro to the character, especially because we get another intro like three minutes later that I think is is much you know probably more effective,
0: and that intro is John's intro to Sherlock, yeah.
2: John meets his old friend, Stamford, who is see- asking how he's doing. He's saying, I can't afford to live in London, but also who would want to share an apartment with me. And he says, oh, that's interesting. It's very it's very similar to Studying Scarlet. He's saying, you're the second person that said that to me today. And then we smash cut to Sherlock in in the um, the Mortuary.
0: Morgue. Yeah. Yeah. Beating a corpse to determine... Bruising? Bruising times. Yeah. In Studying Scarlet, he is inventing a way to detect if something has ever had blood on it so which mm-hmm. is like much more forensic and mm-hmm. he's like just made this new discovery which he's excited to share with Watson when he meets him the substitution here feels a little clumsy I imagine that people have already published journals about how long it takes bruises to form on corpses I,
2: I- could be incorrect but I I think that it might be something that he mentions either a study on or something that he uh, has done for a specific case Mm -hmm. in the past uh, in study in scarlet that they are then just dramatizing but i do think you're on to something interesting that this is a a pretty big indication of the diversion between canon and their version of sherlock holmes i think this actually is first scene that we're about to talk about is a is a pretty clear like uh, guidepost of like oh this is how this this version of the character is different because yeah. I think Sarah talked about it on your Granada Holmes episode. The first time that they meet in in the canon is this, like, exuberant meeting where Holmes has just made this discovery. I, I like, have this picture of him, you know, running down the fucking, like, he's, like, running down the aisle, like, high-fiving everyone because he did it. And he comes <laughs> up and he's, like, happily shaking John's hand. He's really excited to meet him. It's actually a very positive first meeting of, of like, oh, that's great. We're going to live together. This is This is a really... He, he's he, he's just a weird little guy in no. in the canon, and the, and then this one I think is is so clearly setting it as he's cool. I think that is what defines this character. He's a cool version of Sherlock Holmes,
0: and, Um and cool in
2: a way uh, that feels very shiny.
0: Yeah, and cool not just like desirable and like societally cool, mm-hmm. but also cool like temperamentally, like emotionally, emotionally cool. And I I don't know where this idea got started because I think we see a lot of these. Sherlocks, Jeremy Brett being the big exception, I think. <laughs> that are just like so flat in their affects most of the
1: time. I mean that that could be a Basil Rathbone thing. He was very I, I don't I don't think stoic is the correct word, but it's the first word that's coming to mind in his performance.
2: It's been an interesting telephone game of Holmes at a because I think that there are moments in the stories where where you can see that coming from where he's described as kind of reserved emotionally and very professional, especially when he's with clients. I think that there's an interesting thing where, that's happening where they're attributing behavior that he exhibits towards clients in a professional setting to his personal relationships as well, which has been an interesting thing to happen. And also, I think there is talk in the original series about Holmes having these kind of manic episodes where he is exuberant and he is leaned forward. and He's very intense. And then moments where he withdraws in and doesn't talk to anyone, and I think that a lot of adaptations attribute that to a particular coldness or an aversion to people mm-hmm. or an antisocialness, rather than you know any type of of kind of depressive episodes. Which it feels those are more what I read from the original stories. So it feels like more just like we're picking things from the stories and attributing them to things that I don't actually think are is what they're indicating of. But I also think that is also the product of the moment that this was created in. Like it was, you know, it was 2010 this came out in. I think that was also like the period we were in where this was the cool dude. This is like the cool hot topic dude. Every Holmes is a reflection of kind of like what the current moment wants him to be. And I think that the version of that was this very interesting, like Tumblr hot boy version of it. And, and also it is also interesting to watch the ways in which, I think Stephen Moffat and Mark Gatiss kind of wrote this Sherlock Holmes as a, like, riff on The Doctor, honestly. There are moments when it just feels like we're writing The Doctor without a TARDIS. So clearly. Yeah.
0: Well, and also vice versa. If you go and look at Stephen Moffat's first Doctor Who episode as a full-time showrunner, it's Sherlock Holmes stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, he does. Mm -hmm. And this never comes back. I don't know if you've ever seen the 11th hour of the episode. I have, yeah. We watched it somewhat recently. Mm -hmm. And... The doctor does like Sherlock Holmes vision where he has this moment and this never happens again in the Doctor Who canon (laughs) where he like sees the like a 360 view of the situation and notices an odd detail that nobody else is noticing and like picks up on it and like Mm -hmm. that's not the doctor. So Moffat got his signals crossed and also he only knew how to write (laughs) one man and he was like. I'm going to tell you a story about the coolest man who ever existed, and all of the sexy women who yeah. stood near him.
2: <laughs> and Stephen Moffat really only knows how to like write like one type of cool dude, and it's yeah. this. Like that's that's really it, that's what it feels like to me. It feels like a combo of like one particular very specific reading of the text, the particular moment in which it existed, and what we thought was cool, and what Stephen Moffat specifically as a human being thinks is cool.
0: Mm-hmm. And what Stephen Moffat <laughs> thinks is cool is a man who is so smart that he gets
1: bored sometimes. And then has to go find something interesting to look at. I do got to say, though, you know, when we started this podcast, we talked about, you know, the characterization of Sherlock and what we think of the character of Sherlock when when, when his name comes to mind. I got to say, Benedict's portrayal is what I think mm-hmm. many people would assume yeah. the Sherlock character would be like. And, I, and it's been interesting reading the stories and seeing... Like you said, like these moments of exuberance and these moments of a really happy home, something that we're not used to, and it, mm-hmm. and I think it's just so interesting. Like, I, I think many people today would will immediately think, "Oh, Benedict is Holmes."
2: It's actually kind of fascinating that we're talking about this in the context of of Doctor Who, because I actually think what what the funny thing to me that I realized recently, and maybe it's because like who is back, and and this is the particular moment that it's happening. I honestly think if you're doing a doctor that feels like Holmes to me, it's David Tennant. Yeah, like David Tennant's energy as the doctor is m- so much, and it's interesting because it's not Stephen Moffat as showrunner. But I'm like the literally the showrunner right before you cast someone and and wrote a character with the energy that I'm like, when I think of the energy, the tempo, the kind of like gear shifts that he's doing, the intensity, but also the lightness and also the those moments of intense focus, but also intense remoteness. I do think of 10 of of the 10th Doctor.
1: Could we possibly say that 10 and Donna are the perfect Sherlock and Watson like counterpoint?
2: I'll say it right now. You can quote me on that.
1: <laughs> Let's
0: go. I'll watch the NDA day of the week. I'm going to start the, the GoFundMe right now. I don't know. How do we mm-hmm. make that happen?
2: <laughs> but yeah, that's, I think it's interesting that it's like, it's it's so close to the thing that I imagine in canon, but but so different at the same way.
0: Yeah. The other thing we get into this sequence before, before Watson walks in, we're going to spend a lot of time in the first half of this episode, I think, is that we get introduced to the only series regular character who is not from the canon, which is Molly Hooper.
2: We can't get into my feelings on Molly without talking about the fuck the freaking fourth season, which I don't want to get into because we cannot jump to the fourth season. But this is one of the most done dirty characters in any TV show ever. That's yes. I'll leave it at that. No. She deserved better.
0: So true. I promise I'll give you like like five minutes to rant about the fourth season at the end of this episode because I think that has to happen.
2: Yeah, we can't. We cannot jump into it now. We cannot do it.
1: <laughs> I mean, even from the couple episodes we've seen, I'm like, oh, they this girl, this poor girl, they can't do anything right with her like shit she's the punching bag of
0: the show
2: she is she is
0: she only exists to be put down by sherlock and to have this long unrequited crush and and that's it and i you know and she's in every episode she's always in the show
2: she's in every episode yeah She's in, at the very least, a vast majority of them. I'm trying to... I think there's, like, one or two that she's not in, or she makes a very brief appearance. But she is a mainstay on the show, and they try to give her some agency in the midpoint, but also it gets messy. Because, like, it's very similar... To John, where a lot of people thought, oh, there's a point for this character being here. There's an arc that she's on. There's maybe a moment of independence that she's going to have. And they sort of do it. And then at the very end, they backslide entirely, go back to the same old tropes. She has a character that is so tied to her love for and desire for this unavailable man, which is another Stephen Moffat mainstay. That she seems to be there and and her purpose seems to be extremely clouded in the story. Because at first it seems to be to establish that he is not interested in either women or anyone. But then that's made. And then in the second episode we're talking about, that doesn't seem to be the case. And then we just don't really know why she's there unless she's a punching bag. Like it's, it's a very messy handling of a character that was clearly an attempt to add more women into this world. I don't think
0: it's that. I think she's just there to tell us
1: that Sherlock is sexually desirable.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. You're right.
1: They said, you're going to want to fuck Benedict. (laughs) You're just meeting him now. They said,
2: rest assured, our Holmes could fuck if he wanted to.
0: (laughs) And he doesn't want to. (laughs)
2: <laughs> he doesn't w- seem to want to until maybe he does and then maybe he doesn't again and then maybe he does and then we'll never engage with that in any meaningful way within the text. What are you talking about? We never made it seem like we were going to engage with that in any meaningful way. Certainly not in five consecutive con- like things where he's pushed into talking about, "Oh, you are interested in people. Who are you interested in, Sherlock? You'll never be complete unless you're interested in someone." And then the text says well, we'll never follow through on that.
0: Yeah. Why would you want to know? What were you people-
2: thinking? We were doing. What did plot. you think we were doing with the plot? That's crazy, girl. What?
0: The whole point it's of art is to Steven. ask questions and then never answer them,
2: and then never answer them. <laughs> I. Yeah. There are entire sections of this show that literally don't make sense. No. Like there are, there are sections of the show that I'm like, it's not not even in a like. There's no heterosexual explanation for this in a like. If that's not the story you're telling, then this scene makes no sense. Like, there yeah. are entire scenes. Where, and we'll get into this, I'm sure, later with yes. all of the subtext stuff. But it's just like, you have made your show incomprehensible. Congratulations. Anyway, back into it. <laughs> so, Molly got done dirty. It's crazy.
0: Molly got done just so dirty. So John walks into the room. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and we get we just basically get the scene from from the book except plus texting i think a major theme of this episode and also the other one we're talking about is that they're like it's modern so everything has to be about phones now and and we get that a, a couple times the next case revolves
1: around a phone this case it's modern for that time. Oh,
2: sure. The amount of times in this second episode in, in Scandal in Bulgravia where it absolutely took me out, how often they say the word blog is just <laughs> so funny.
0: Yes. So we get a Sherlock deduction, which he explains like two scenes from now, but I'll I'll just explain it now, which is based almost exactly half of the deductions are about what John Watson's phone looks like because he asks for John Watson's phone so he could text somebody. I think Lestrade. We also learned that John has a blog instead of writing the adventures, he's going to write a blog. And that Mm -hmm. Sherlock also has a website where he's Mm -hmm. publishing his thoughts about criminology instead of publishing in the newspaper.
2: Which were real websites you could go to at the time of this airing.
0: they so were. They so were. Mm -hmm. Because this was the big era where everyone was doing like, oh, what was it called? Did you ever watch the... Lizzie Bennet Diaries?
2: Yes, I did. I watched the whole thing.
0: Yes. Okay. So they called it Transmedia.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: I feel so honored. (laughs) It's called Transmedia because you could follow the story on different places. Mm -hmm. So in the Lizzie Bennet Diaries, it was like there's a YouTube series, but then there's also like different channels doing other YouTube series. The characters all have Twitter accounts Mm -hmm. where they're talking to each other. There are websites like Mm -hmm. the experience left whatever video streaming Mm -hmm. website it was on. And Sherlock is making a a weak attempt to do the same thing. (laughs) By having two websites that were full of basically dummy text.
1: Ooh,
0: yes. two websites. And that
2: between seasons two and three, people scoured for secret clues.
0: And there were none.
2: There were none. There were none. It was a badly made website that they never did anything with and yeah. then abandoned forever.
0: I also want to point out that this show like, basically introduced the visual language that would dominate movies and TV for the next 10 years for how to show texting on screen. I just want to like call that yes. out as a, as a thing this show does well. It's like it's, it seems stupid simple when you see it, but like they were the first ones to do it, and everybody else started copying mm-hmm. it because I think it works really nicely. Yeah, yeah. and they're they're having fun with it clearly.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Just they nice figured
2: thing. out a new way to not just show a phone.
0: screen. yeah, yeah exactly.
2: And there is there are genuine attempts to show in a visual medium what it looks like in someone's head when they are doing the type of deductions that he does. I don't think that the, the execution is great, but I do think there's something interesting about trying to visualize a thought process mm-hmm. that also felt very new and very interesting and felt like a, a way to let you into Holmes's process in a way that other adaptations couldn't really find a way to do. So we will also give it credit for that. Again, the execution is, in my opinion, pretty lacking. But yeah. I do think kudos at least to try to do something interesting with that visual language.
0: I actually like the the deduction thing. It's it's a little silly where the camera mm-hmm. like zooms into various details and then there's text and it just mm-hmm. you know it says what Sherlock is seeing. Mm-hmm. But I think it makes sense for a media consumer in 2010. To get the information that way, then, as opposed to the way that it always happens in Sherlock Holmes, which is that after whoever it is has left the room, Watson goes, how could you have known? And he goes, well, I noticed uh, a mark on his left boot that proves that he...
2: Well, allow me to show off for a few minutes.
0: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> which where it's which just is like a monologue. so charming. Is, is there a version of Sherlock-A-Vision that you prefer?
2: I think definitely these early versions are the best because I also think what they do is they at least attempt to show you the clues and then let you figure it out. I think it gets progressively worse as the show goes on.
0: Yes, yeah. It's, it
2: feels very flash for flash sake later yes. in the series.
0: There are a couple flashy transitions in early in the season. And then there's a couple like, there's one sequence in particular later in this episode where they're racing across London to try to beat Taxi Cab. <laughs> which what's us put a pin mm-hmm. on because i do want to talk about that <laughs> where mm-hmm. they like go a little extreme with the visuals where they're like flashing signs and there's like gps and there's mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and people must have praised the show for it at the time because they just keep doing it and it just gets worse and worse and more bizarre yeah. <laughs> and more like mm-hmm. cheesy as the show goes on
2: yeah i think some of the worst versions of it are the sequence that you're describing There's a version where we go into in the fourth season, they hire a dog and we get to see it everything through the dog's point of view. Very ineffective. Yeah, it's bad. And then there is a sequence in The Hound of the Baskervilles where or the Hounds of Baskerville, where we're seeing his like mind palace thing and he's doing kind of a a futuristic like moving. Yeah, it's very silly. But then I think there are also very effective moments of it, like, specifically the first time that it gets used in the, in this case. Then there's a sequence where we we drop kind of that version of it, and we go specifically into this me- this uh, mind palace that he talks about at the end of season three, um, where we, like, literally go into his mind and his visual representation of, of the way that his mind is organized, which I think is interesting. And then one of the more effective ones is also in Hound of Baskerville, where uh, there's a sequence where he is having what is what amounts to essentially a panic attack. And he is overstimulated, and he is panicking. He's in a situation where he feels very out of control. He doesn't understand what he's walking into. He thinks maybe there's a supernatural element to it. Fear is a huge theme of the episode. And Watson's telling him, like, just calm down. I understand what you're going through. And in order to demonstrate, it's, it's a very fast sequence, and we are just seeing him in overdrive and seeing all of the ways in which the room is overstimulating to him because he has all of this extra information that he's reading about everyone at once and he goes through it in this really rapid fire way and we're we're moving so fast and the this sound design is overwhelming and i think it's actually one of those times where we're not just putting it, put in his mind for how smart he is but to how busy it feels in his mind and how scary it can sometimes feel in his mind mm. so there are good and bad ways to use this particular tool
0: yes They look at the apartment together, they move in, there's a
1: murder. Mrs. Hudson. Mrs. Hudson, we Mrs. Hudson. Will they
2: need two rooms? Or just the one?
1: (laughs) Just the one.
2: You know, Ian and I, my Ian and I watched this episode, and the thing thing we realized, and I didn't really think, like, when I was first watching it, but in retrospect, I think it's fine to address this once. If you're not going to engage with, like, they're going to be a couple. Mm -hmm. I think you're allowed one. Yeah. Where it's like one person asking, are you a couple? And then being like, no, that's not what's going on here. Moving on with our show. I think you can get one. Yeah, I think when you do three within the same episode, it's like, what are we doing here? Right. It's like, you're either going to subvert that in some way by engaging with that. And you're trying to make us notice, or it's vaguely hateful. And so I think that, you know, I think, that's what I stuck think- out to me is just like, yeah.
0: And time has proven yeah. that it's vaguely hateful because we get a number of like yeah. queer people in this show that all have to get put in their place. <laughs> like that, that mm-hmm. is that that is the arc of actual on screen queer characters, is that almost always mm-hmm. they're villains and they like Sherlock has to best them somehow. They really got a case of the Nat Gays here. But but it, it is true that it happens three times in this episode.
2: <laughs> it happens three times in this episode and then it continues to happen in Scandal and Belgravia. Yeah. Which, yeah. why, which I I am interested to talk about because I think that when I originally watched it, I thought that episode was saying something interesting and kind of nuanced. And then rewatching it with new context, I'm like, oh no, never should have given you credit for that. That was completely <laughs> by accident. Yeah, this, that was this, this, entirely by accident what you were doing. I never should have done that. Oops.
0: Yeah, there's <laughs> a big moment we have to talk about when we get to schedule in yeah. Arabia for sure. Yeah, Lestrade shows up. There's a crime. There's been another murder in the string of serial suicides. I really, I like Lestrade in this. I love Lestrade in this.
2: Love Lestrade. Love Lestrade. uh, He's one of my favorite parts of the show.
0: Yeah. Sherlock leaves and does a fake out by coming back to invite Watson to join him. This is the like John Watson psychology moment where he goes, I'm sure you've seen some awful things. You want to see some more? And Watson's like, oh God, yes. Which also feels a little homoerotic, I think. Uh, a little when... <laughs> a little he said it like oh god yes right so I... so they each give the other something they need and what that is i won't mm-hmm. say da, 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 da. <laughs> when they get to the crime scene sherlock says i think to Lest- uh to Lestrade or to sally who's another punching bag of the show <laughs> that he needs needs an assistant which is a new idea right Like, that, like, he's introducing the idea of Watson as, like, a functional part of his crime solving. And he also engages Mm -hmm. Watson in this episode as a doctor. He Mm -hmm. does an investigation of the murdered woman, and then he asks Watson to do the same and share his conclusions. And, again, this is another example, I think, of, like, the show doesn't keep doing this. But, like, this is an interesting idea about, like, what the dynamic is and what the dynamic is going to be. What Watson brings to the table and what Sherlock needs, like does like Sherlock needs a second person to be there for some reason and knows that he does. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I don't know what they I think they weren't thinking. I don't think this idea comes back.
2: (laughs) Yeah, Watson feels kind of vital to not only the like the delivering of the story, but also to the solving of the mystery in this episode yeah. in a way that d- does not necessarily come back. He's there for a lot of the future mysteries, but he feels vital to the at this point the discovery of clues and then later at the end in the actual action of the the finale. Yeah. In a way that really doesn't come back in the future and and in a way that I re- I still really like. I like how active Watson is in these episodes and how much it is Very much, just as much his story as Holmes' if not more in this episode.
0: Yeah, but the show is so scared about ever letting anyone get the upper hand over Sherlock or ever Mm -hmm. letting anyone be smarter than Sherlock about anything that Mm -hmm. I don't think that even in this episode he says anything that's actually helpful to the case. I don't remember what he actually says, but it's something along the lines of, He sure is dead.
2: yeah. I, I'm thinking, I think, more of the the end when he provides like genuine, tangible help. Um, oh, sure. Yeah. Not only physically, but like in realizing the psychology of Holmes is able to then help him yeah. because he knows the type of person that he is. He knows the danger that he'll put himself in and is able to understand that
1: mm-hmm. and preempt
2: that. I think that's stuff that I'm really interested in, that it's like your value is not necessarily in being able to solve mysteries, but being able to anticipate the needs of the person you're a partner with.
0: Mm. Yeah, I was reminded one of the Granadas adapts in a moment where John has medical expertise that Sherlock doesn't. And I've always appreciated them for it because I've never seen anyone else do it.
2: <laughs> and I, I do appreciate there's, there's at least like one point in Sherlock that I do think is funny where they do show him at work. And I think it's one of the <laughs> only times in, in any adaptation where I'm like, Oh, shit, John, you go to work? You've remembered that you're a doctor today. That's crazy. (laughs) He immediately leaves work, but he at least is there. Yeah. Um, I'm like, oh, that's right, you're a doctor.
0: Yeah, even in the novels and short stories, he's just like, I took a couple days off my practice to solve a murder. Imagine
2: (laughs) you're like, you have a doctor's appointment, like you're trying to go to your primary care doctor, and you've like had to schedule this four months in advance and he's like, Oh, I'm so sorry, there was a murder. Can I schedule <laughs> you out four months again? I hope that cough got better. Thanks, bud.
0: For some reason I wrote so flirty, but I don't know what I was talking about.
2: It could be any number of moments in be any, all of this. Um it could be
0: any number of moments
1: there there were some very deep looks into each other's eyes when both when they were dissecting the body. Which mm-hmm. they they dissect a body it, there's the, the German word,
0: oh, the next the next thing I have is phone deduction, which is actually in the cab on the way to the crime scene, which is when we get Sherlock talking about what he read off of Watson's phone. Something else happens here that I like a lot that the show also never does again, which is that Sherlock gets mm-hmm. something wrong mhm he and the thing he gets wrong is that he assumes people are straight, which I just, so true. which like. Somebody who was doing an intentional job of writing queer Mm subjects would include also, I would think, because he Ah. read the engraving on the back of Watson's phone, which says something like Harry Watson from Clara. And he deduces that Watson Mm -hmm. has a brother who is Mm -hmm. estranged from his wife. And Watson says, no, I have a Mm -hmm. sister. Harry's short for Harriet. And Holmes and Cannon gets things wrong. Yeah. Mm -hmm. This feels like a nice nod to that.
2: And he he sulks about it. Yeah. I also think what happens in the the very small thing that happens a few times in the sequence that I also love that is a nod to canon and that also never happens again is that Watson compliments him multiple times openly Mm. and very effusively. Like, keeps talking about how he's amazing. That was incredible. That was, like, astounding. And that is a thing in canon where he, I think Watson at one point says that like when he gets complimented, he he like blushes like a schoolgirl. Yeah, like he loves being praised. Yeah, and that is something. There's a reason that he likes being around Watson because Watson is so vocal and effusive in his praise. And we we also like never see that again. We also do, like later in in the series it devolves to the point where Watson is using some of the same derogatory language that you see some of the officers use in this. And, it, and it's something I treasure about these early episodes because they seem to genuinely like each other. Yeah. Like, there are moments in this first episode where I'm just like, they're laughing together and they're bantering and they're complimenting each other and they're just palpably enjoying each other's company in a way that that they're not able to harness in the future. And they lost that magic because these two actors do have chemistry. Yeah, And then I think that the show just sort of takes that for granted quite a bit. But the, my some of my favorite moments in this in this episode are the moments when they just stop and laugh together mm-hmm. and and I just think that it's really fun
1: yeah 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 i hundred percent agree i I think those are really fun moments and honestly feel very faithful to the novels yeah and I
2: like that especially these those original ones like those original ones like study in scarlet i really even though it has that weird section in the middle where we're hanging out with mormons i really <laughs> like that story because it is a really effective kind of like almost a meet cute like they genuinely are it's, it's it's the beginning of a relationship it is two people feeling each other out and discovering how much they genuinely like each other mm-hmm. and then deciding at the end to to do something together and i think that this that in the best parts of this episode they do capture that feeling of like when you meet someone And the enormity of what that feels when you know that they are an important person in your life and the magic of that moment, it really does capture that feeling of like, oh, this person's here and this is special. And I really like it in those moments that there is a genuine electricity, however you choose to interpret that or wherever they plan on going or not going. It feels like there's possibility, which I think is what any first installation of a Holmes and Watson should make you feel like there is a world of possibility for these two together.
0: Yeah, I think the big thing that this episode is saying is that these two people complete each other in some sense. hmm yeah. Uh, and, like, they, they develop this immediate loyalty and reliance on one another, which is what the next scene sort of establishes, because um, despite that, Sherlock abandons Watson at the crime scene, and he sadly <laughs> walks away with his crutch, and he's picked up by, well, a mysterious figure... <laughs>
2: A mysterious figure.
0: A mysterious figure who the show wants you to think so badly is Moriarty. Oh,
2: so badly. Yeah. And it's played by Mark Gatiss, who is one of the co-writers and co-creators, who was, if you watched the, I don't know if you've ever watched the the unaired pilot of the episode. But he was a one hour pilot and it existed without Mycroft in it. Which was the main change in the show, other than some, like, stylistic changes. And I think that it it feels like the most, like, we don't need this in this particular episode. It's a tease. It feels like they're teasing Moriarty. And you're like, this is the first episode. I don't need you to tease Moriarty. Can we just hang out with John and Sherlock, please? <laughs> and there's the, then they also tease the actual Moriarty in this. It's like, that's that's some of the least successful stuff in the episode, for me, at least.
1: Yeah. Yes. This was the moment where I had to pause, look over and go, what the fuck? What are we doing? Why are we Ah! we doing? Why are we doing this? And this is honestly my main complaint with this series is that each episode is too long. It does not need to be an hour and a half. And I think it also comes from the fact that we have seen perfect adaptations. Granada is a really great adaptation of... Holmes, because they are able to even with changes even with adding stuff they are able to tell their story within a perfect 40 to an hour long period of time and that feels enough it just feels like the perfect amount of mystery cuteness between holmes and watson and just i -hmm. guess atmosphere as well if we're talking about you know the the period that this Holmes takes place in and ultimately Mm -hmm. I I really wish that maybe we could have watched that original pilot because I have a feeling Mm -hmm. I would have liked the original pilot a lot more than this episode because it's it's not overblown and we're not getting this additional ooh is this is this Moriarty or immediately I knew it was Mycroft like there's no one else that it could be i even was like oh mycroft okay great why are we getting mycroft (laughs) like now like what it what is what is the point
0: well and also i mean the thing is, is that this show is an ensemble show and like there is a core cast that is truly in every episode molly and lestrade and mycroft are in every single episode along with sherlock and watson and mrs hudson
2: Mm-hmm. Mrs. Hudson is in every episode, yeah.
0: Every episode. Even when it doesn't make sense for Lestrade to be in the episode, he's in the episode. Like when they yeah. go to, like, kind of the basketballs where they're not... Being... He's,
2: they're out of town and he's still, like, rolling up, like, hey, guys, I made it.
0: <laughs> I'm in this episode, too, and they still have to pay me.
2: <laughs> I'm here for my paycheck, please.
0: And, and the thing about this is that once you know that this is Minecraft, the things he says don't make any sense because he's no. he's written to be, like intentionally ominous and mysterious in a way that Minecraft never is for the rest of the show because they want you to think it's Moriarty. It's just bad writing.
2: Yeah, the only way that you can justify it, weirdly, is if he's giving a weird shovel talk to his brother's new boyfriend. Yeah. Like, genuinely. That is the only thing that you can justify it as. Is like, hey, he hasn't dated anyone before. Please be cool. <laughs> Basically.
1: You. Yeah, like, the, yeah. they try, they try to make him this ominous character, and then at least the other episode, he becomes, like, the bitchy gay relative of Sherlock, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah,
2: yeah,
0: but not canonically gay because then they'd have to kill him or something. I don't know.
2: A lot of people did ship him and Lestrade, apparently.
0: I think it's interesting to think about Sherlock as a story that deserves an ensemble cast because I don't think that's how the short stories function. But I, I, I like it here. No. I don't, I don't mind it.
2: I do too. I think they give a a little too much weight for Mycroft. I don't like if if you look at the weight of the whole show. I don't know if he as a character can sustain it. I don't think he, he has a ton to do. You haven't seen this one. The literal last episode of the entire show is weirdly Mycroft focused. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah. So they're clearly trying to be like, it's justified. It's justified putting this much time into Mycroft. Cause right at the end, we're going to try to make you care really, really bad. And, yeah. but it just, it's a, he's a second episode intro. They should, they should intro him in the second episode of the season. But it's also that's a that's a wider format problem because you have these 90 minute episodes, but also only a three episode season. So -hmm. the first episode is usually dealing with either in this case, the meeting and setting everything up. The finale is bringing everything home and bringing us to a cliffhanger and doing something like really crazy and like dealing with the Moriarty of it all. And then, oh, and then like, you know, the premiere of the next season is dealing with 90 minutes of the fallout from whatever the previous 90 minutes were, which always just leaves this middle episode. That's like the only one where it's like, let's just hang out and solve a mystery. Like it's the only one of the season. And so it always feels so out of place because you're just like, Oh, oh, now we're, Oh, cool. Now we're like doing an episodic hangout and we're just solving a mystery. And then like the literal next episode, they're like, and that's done now. And it's done. And it will never come back. And you're like, it's the weirdest whiplash where you're like, in a like 22 episode season, that would feel fine. But when there's only three, what's this middle one even doing here? Yeah. Right. It's very strange. It's very strange.
0: Yeah. And the thing is that like episode one is too early to introduce Moriarty, but because it's only three episodes, episode two would be too
1: late. (laughs)
2: Yeah, because he's going to walk in in episode three. Like, he's right. going to walk in the door whether you like it or not.
1: Yeah. But it doesn't have to be three episodes.
0: Yeah, I wonder yep. why that choice is made. I've never even thought about that, but, like, why do they choose to... Wh- what other TV show has three hour and a half long episodes per season every two years? I
1: guarantee it's budget. British
2: people are weird. But you also, you could do five episodes, like, five 45-minute episodes. Like, you could do the exact same runtime. Just split it up a different way. Yeah. So th- I, I just I I don't get it either. I frankly don't get it. Or even if,
1: if it were like two parters, but you still have like a forty-five to, to an hour chunk, and then the next episode would be the second half. Like, do something to split it up. Ninety minutes of a full episode, like a whole movie length.
0: And the thing is that, like, there are movies about the Sherlock Holmes characters. And they, like, pick big weird cases that have, like, a lot of elements when they're written well. And and a lot of intrigue and, you know, action sequences and things. And these weirdly feel like hour-and-a-half-long television episodes, which is maybe the problem. Mm-hmm. Is, like, they sometimes they set their sights that high, but it feels like they're stretching a little when they do.
1: Yeah, these are stories that are genuinely not substantial enough to turn into hour and a half long episodes hounded the baskervilles yes go right ahead make that like make that a two hour if you want to like there's a lot that you can do with yeah. that but a study in scarlet like and scandal in yeah. bohemia and without you? and without the mormons and without the mormons too like if you're gonna do that ep- yeah give me the mormons come on make them like <laughs> kind of a government scheme i don't know
2: Give me more British people talking in American accents, please. <laughs> we didn't get enough of them in Scandal in Belgravia. That one dude's accent was crazy.
0: <laughs> so I, moving along, uh, at this point, it becomes clear that because it's the modern age, the phone is the hinge of the case, which is which I just mm-hmm. that i them showing off. and being like, look, see, 2010.
2: So he ends up texting the killer on John's phone to mm-hmm. se- to pretending to be the woman that is dead saying in pretending that she's she survived and wants to meet up yeah and so he's essentially setting a trap for the murderer which is very similar to actually something that happens in study in scarlet which i think is also like that's a fun way of doing that where they're like oh this ring was discovered that you left behind um yes so it's like it's a fun little homage and then that leads them to doing a kind of stakeout on this location where they have dinner They have a date. This Italian, they have this Italian restaurant, which has a deeply weird scene that I still don't know what to do with to this day. Okay.
0: (laughs) I think I can quote the scene verbatim. I've thought about it so much. Um, What
2: is happening in this scene? What
0: is happening? They're on a date. So they arrive at a restaurant owned by a man named Angelo. I think, is the place called Angelo's? Yes.
2: It's called Angelo's. Yes. Unfortunately, I do know that. I'm um, pretending that I didn't know it. I'm like, I don't know all of these small details. I know it. I know it all. I know. Yeah. It. <laughs> like,
0: Angelo is a friend yes. of Sherlock's, and he says, "I'll bring you a candle for your table for you, for you and your
1: date to make it more romantic." And Sherlock's like, "Doesn't stop him." <laughs>
2: and Watson so looks like, like I don't care, bro.
1: Yeah, and Watson <laughs> yeah. like is like not dead, Fred. Like it's not a date. <laughs> and and then they proceed to have a conversation about you mean a
0: date. No, that well, that happens in the next episode. You need to watch that. They do have a conversation in the next episode where Watson's like, a date is where people go out and have fun with each other. And Sherlock's like, that's what I was proposing. It's like, Were you? Were you proposing?
2: Yeah, like John's about to go out with a woman and and like and Sherlock's like, I need you to come with me tonight. And John's like, No, I have a date. And Sherlock's like, What what does that even mean? And he's like, you know, it's when two people who like each other go out and enjoy the night. And Sherlock's like, that's literally what I was suggesting. It's insane. It's insane. And then he ruins his date with this woman. He literally crashes his date with this woman and then ruins his night. It's crazy. I also just love that when Angelo puts the candle down against his will, he gives a little thumbs up. I just think (laughs) he's great. (laughs) Angelo understands what's happening. He has the correct read on the situation and he is rooting for them.
0: Yes. As we all are in that moment. So can you describe the conversation?
2: I don't even know how it begins. I'm trying to remember. How they even get on the subject of that? Because John, I want to say John, like out of nowhere, is like, "Do you have a girlfriend?" And then Sherlock's like, "No, not really my area." And then John says, "Oh, do you have a boyfriend then?" And then he doesn't answer.
0: And John, and then says, he said, and then John, the which way. John says,
2: which is fine by the way. And then Sherlock says, "I know it's fine." And then John, I believe, continues to say, oh, that means you're unattached, like me. Good. And then there's a a weird charged moment where they just kind of look at each other. And then Sherlock proceeds to very gently let him down, not by saying he's not interested in men, but by saying he's got too much going on with work right now.
0: Yeah, I'm married to my work.
2: And then John... Depending on how you view this, either is like backing away, I'm not interested in men, or is super embarrassed and is like, oh, no, that's not what was happening. But it is a scene that is like one of those acting scenes where they're like, here's just six lines of dialogue. Put your own subtext onto it. And you're like, what is happening here? (laughs) Like I, It's again, and it's just the culmination of like, if you say it one time, I believe you. If you continue to say it, then I'm starting to think that maybe there's something here. Right. <laughs> yeah.
0: I, I mean, this is the thing is that, like, I think that people retrospectively look back at the show and like, how could I have ever believed that they weren't going to make them gay, you know, in the mid 2010s? But like, it's not coming from nowhere.
2: No, like, I, I, I got to jump into something that like, we haven't, you know, you haven't seen, Ian. There is a scene in the third season. Where at the end of the third season, and Evan, I, like, jump in if you, if you know this, where they are going to be parted, yes. where Sherlock has made a huge gamble, has sacrificed yeah. himself, and is now going to be sent away on a mission where presumably he is not going to come back. Yeah. He's going to die. This is going to be, I am saying goodbye to you forever. We mm-hmm. will never see each other again. And he says, I, I want to say, the exact words is, John, there's something I've always meant to say. I never said it. And now because I'll never get to say it, I may as well say it now. And, the and then at is, the last second, he chickens out.
0: Right. And the thing yeah. is that like in the episode, the in, the episode prior is entirely about him talking about how much he respects John as a friend. So he's said yep. all that.
2: <laughs> like, he said everything else. So there's literally, I'm like, Stephen Moffat, Cool. Literally, what the fuck else was he going to say if it wasn't, I love you? But yeah. like, Genuinely, actually, if you do not firmly believe that he was going to say, I love you, the scene doesn't make sense. Not at it all. literally does not make sense if that is not what is about to happen. And so it's like, I, I, I when they're like, oh, we never were going to do that. I'm like, cool. Then what the fuck was that scene? Yeah. What was he going to say? Yeah. There are no other secrets drive. between the two of them. There are no other secrets that these two characters have from each other if it is not that. Right. And so it's like whenever they try to deny it, it's like, no, you purposefully wrote that into the show. Right. That is clearly here. That is an idea that like if you bring it up once, you c- I can excuse it as a, like a, a, an, an ill-timed joke mm-hmm. or as like we have to engage with it somehow because this ca- this relationship is loaded and has been ever since canon. Mm-hmm. And like people are yeah. always going to discuss that part of it, so we have to engage with it in some way, even if it's just like engage with it once, never again. But the fact that you continually engage with it, and also the fact that you continually have people calling it out and calling them a couple, and John continually pushing back against that, then it seems like you're you're leading to something, and that is something that never pays off narratively, and that is a bad storytelling just to bait people. Yeah. which which is. Actively making your own show make less sense, which just like, why would you do that? No one held a gun to your head and made you write these scenes. That's and the thing that blows my mind. i like, Stephen Moffat, no one made you do that. You wrote the scene.
0: Why? <laughs> right. <laughs> and like, you know, one thing that I always think about in terms of the show holistically, just because we're here now, is mm-hmm. that Mark Gatiss is the co-creator of the show. It's not Stephen Moffat's show. It's Mark Gatiss and Stephen Moffat's show. And Mark mm-hmm. Gatiss is a gay man. Mm-hmm. And not only is he a gay man, but he wrote a book series. Do you know about this? Yeah. Okay. So he wrote a book series about... It's the exact opposite premise of Sherlock, actually. So Sherlock is a a detective from the Victorian time in the modern era, um, and the Lucifer Box mysteries are a like James Bond-style detective in the Victorian era. Mm. And Mm. what's wild about the first book in the Lucifer Box series is that the main character is revealed to be bisexual exactly halfway through, which proves that Mark Gatiss understands the value of queer representation that emerges later in the story about queer representation. That Mm -hmm. isn't the point of the story and queer representation as like a, as like a casual facet of somebody's identity. Like Mm -hmm. all of those things are valuable and interesting to Mark Gatiss. And then he made Sherlock and I, and yeah, I,
2: and then you do it, and then you make an episode like *Scandal* in Belgravia, which is very strange about sexual identity, and very and like very kind of like weirdly negating about the sexual identity that people are claiming that that they ascribe to, and yeah. and
0: I should yeah. make it clear that the show isn't written by committee, so we're dealing with two mm-hmm, Stephen yeah. Moffat episodes. The Mark Gatiss mm-hmm. episodes, I'd be curious to go back and look now that I have a better sense of these things. If the Mark Gatiss episodes have a better track record with queer subtext or with mm-hmm. with with or with making less jokes, it's very distinctly every season is three episodes written by three different people. It's Stephen Moffat writes, mm-hmm. does he write the first episode every time? I think Mark Gatiss writes the last one every time. And the one in the middle is written by Mark Thompson, I think.
2: First season, the middle one was written by Stephen Thompson. Mark Gatiss wrote The Great Games, so the third one. Second season, Stephen Moffat wrote The Opener, Scandal in Belgravia. Mark Gatiss wrote Hounds of Baskerville, which I do think is one of the better ones when it comes to like the subtext. Because that is an episode that is entirely about their relationship. And I think it's actually quite interesting in the way that it engages with their relationship. Reckenbach Fall was written by neither of them. was written by Stephen Thompson. They both wrote The Opener for three. Mark Gatiss wrote... or No, they both wrote the minisode. Mark Gatiss wrote The Opening for season three. All three of them wrote The Sign of Three, the Wedding Episode. Oh, Stephen weird. Moffat wrote his last vow, the finale. So they're switching it up quite a bit. Uh-huh. And then, then the final season is Mark Gatiss, Stephen Moffat, and then both of them. So interesting the way that there's not really a consistent way in which they break down the writing. Hmm. And it seems that they they broke a lot of the seasons together. They said it was very collaborative and that they they worked pretty intensely together. It's not really like it is it, they did basically say it is closer to written by committee than delineated writer by writer oh that's good um, to know. so they I, did I, have to be in agreement on some uh, of this stuff which is which is what makes it fascinating
0: uh-huh. well i'm glad to be corrected on that because i've always assumed about the show that, <laughs> that like Stephen moffat would write some horribly homophobic
1: thing and mark Adams would go oh what the fuck
2: <laughs> no apparently he was like sure
1: I like it in York world Stephen Moffat's like I'm gonna be homophobic and then okay, this is like what the fuck what's like okay let me let me let me try to correct this let me try to fix this we're not homophobic I promise <laughs> we're trying to
2: fix it my episode will be super gay I, I promise guys <laughs> like, and then Thompson's like hey guys I'm here too Stephen Thompson's like I think that asexual Sherlock is real and which <laughs> which I agree I'm like maybe. Cause I, I mean, I also think that there is a valid reading for Sherlock as, as on the asexual spectrum in this particular adaptation. Much more clearly. Um, yeah. Which I think is, is something that, that especially in the later episodes, there are so many times in these later episodes where John is pushing him and pushing him of like, you will never be complete unless you're with someone romantically. And like, you need to be with someone. How, how can you be alone? That feels like it is pushing towards some sort of pushback from Sherlock on, I don't need that, I have you. Mm. Whether that is romantically, whether that is an asexual person asserting that, like, I need this person in my life, it feels like you're driving towards something like that. It never materializes in any real way. It's a show that I just can't get a handle on what it's no. trying to do.
0: No, and yeah, and it's baffling that it, tr- it wasn't just people going in different directions. I yeah. I'm glad you brought up the idea of asexual Sherlock because I think that's something that's also I think mm-hmm. that's the other thing that's been dogging this character since Arthur Conan Doyle is before the language mm-hmm. existed is like he's kind of on the page is kind mm-hmm. of sexless, and it's interesting when we get into this next episode that Moffat is poking at that like a lot, like he's saying like, hey, yeah, sex? What about sex? Aren't you kind of interested in sex? <laughs> you know, and and yeah. So just let's just race to the end of this episode. Yeah, for sure. To do a drugs bust, which is how we introduced the idea that Sherlock maybe has drugs at some point, but he's only ever shown to do nicotine patches.
1: Well, before this is the great chase, chasing
0: the cab. Yes, there is the the chase. The only pin that I wanted to remove from that is that I think that this is stupid. I think that it's a stupid deduction. I I think (laughs) that- It's very silly. I think there's no way he would know the route the cab would take. (laughs) Like the show seems to be implying that There's enough one-way roads and closed roads that the cab can only take one route, but I just I just don't buy that. There's a couple. They're going
2: up and down so many stairs. There's no way you're going to catch up to him. No
0: way. (laughs) Yeah, guys. Right. If it was if they were just going down like alleys or something, Mm -hmm. I would maybe get it. But yeah, they they like fully end up on top of buildings and fire escapes, and I. And then this is also when we get the cane thing. Right. He leaves, mm-hmm. John leaves the cane behind, which completes. I also think this is like a little bit offensive to people with PTSD to be like, maybe it's all in your head. Maybe, maybe you, maybe <laughs> yeah. you want the battlefield actually.
2: Yeah. It's not, it's very hand wavy with regards to to medical and psychological accuracy. But I mean, this is also a great scene where they they have a great moment where they're in the, the hall together and they're laughing together. And it's another great moment of them enjoying each other's company and them realizing that they need each other. And then right after this, when it's when John's like doing the, oh yeah, he's not on drugs and Holmes gives him like the very loaded look mm-hmm. is another very you know, very, very heavily gift moment of very intense eye contact and very close faces between these mm-hmm. two. Right. Um,
0: like they've known each other for a day and they already care so much about what the other one thinks of them.
2: Yeah. Which is just like, I mean, I don't understand why they did this whole routine where they're like, we can't imagine why people wanted them to kiss. We just had them, like, have the most intense relationship and constantly talk about whether or not we wanted to kiss and then, <laughs> like, look at each other's mouths constantly. Like, what? People yeah. want them to kiss on the internet? The place that is, that is the kissing other people place? like. That's what the internet is for, my dude.
1: Right. Tumblr, the gay shipping website, is doing gay shipping. It's <laughs> shocking. <laughs> what? And to be fair, Martin Freeman is at eye level with Benedict Cumberbatch's lips. So, I mean, he can't help it.
2: It's unavoidable. Know. He can't it's, help it.
1: It's unavoidable, you know? Anyway,
2: so in the spirit of racing along, continue. Yes. <laughs>
1: this is where we get into the...
0: I guess this is the third act. This, like, unnecessary plot diversion. Well, we're introducing a character flaw for Sherlock here. Kind of. <laughs> Mm-hmm. this sequence can't even decide whether or not sherlock is consumed by this character flaw or not i think but the character flaw is yeah that, is that he's his curiosity gets the better of him the murderer who's a cab driver like in study scarlet shows up at the apartment and is like hey come get in the cab hey kid right wouldn't you be interested to see me try to murder you and sherlock's like i think i would be interested in that thank you and he takes him to an undisclosed location
1: for 20 minutes. For 20,
0: right. And he he's like, hey, have you seen <laughs> The Princess Bride?
2: <laughs> yeah, it's literally the same thing.
0: Yeah. I have two bottles. One of them is the... Actually, actually, this does happen in Study in Scarlet. But I have two bottles. One of them is the good pill. One of them is the bad pill. I'll it's very
2: one. funny that he's like, oh, I'm going to tell you what I said to them that made them kill themselves. Right. Ooh. And then the answer is just like, I asked them.
0: I asked them. Like, I, I gave
2: th- it to them and then they... I threatened to shoot I, them. They did it. Yeah. yeah, they did it like, oh, shocker, when you threaten to kill someone, when you give them the choice between 50% death and 100% death, they tend to choose 50% death. Shocker. Yeah,
0: right. And Sherlock <laughs> is so consumed by how smart he is that he's like, I, even though I do not need to, I will play your stupid game and I will pick one of the
1: pills. And Ma- Martin Freeman Watson is like, I got to track this phone. Right. I got to go to this place. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, I'm in the building that looks eerily similar to the building that Sherlock and the villain are in. I'm right across the way from them. Oh, no. Right.
2: No. Too bad I'm great at shooting things because I'm John Watson and I'm contributing to the group project for once. <laughs>
1: <laughs> the one
0: and only time that I will do so. So, he, yeah, he saves Sherlock's life by shooting the cabbie. Um, Sherlock uses the final moments that the cabbie has living to first ask if he got the pill thing right and then realizing he doesn't have the time uh, ask him who was paying him to do the moitas, and it was Moriarty.
2: Moriarty! Lives in my brain around. forever. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I think about it at least once a week. Every time someone says Moriarty there's a 50% chance my brain goes Moriarty!
1: <laughs> then then we get my Coming into the yeah. crime scene, and you know, gay bitchiness mm-hmm. between the yeah. two brothers. We have to reveal <laughs> that this is that this is Mycroft. Mummy, mummy wouldn't like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: there's a quote I wrote down because I I think it's interesting. I like this moment. Watson says to Sherlock, "You risk your life to prove you're clever," and Sherlock says something else, and he says, "Because you're an idiot." And mm-hmm. I would love to see a Sherlock that could admit that. Sherlock can be an idiot sometimes, and that he makes choices Mm -hmm. that are not always in the best interest of his own life or the lives of people Mm -hmm. around him, which is canonical, I think. And it's a shame they never made any more episodes of this TV show, because then we just have this one.
1: (laughs) Right. There's no more after this. Uh, There's no more. You know what? They they go
2: out to dinner. This one's (laughs) an actual date, and they're great. (laughs) Yeah. You know? <laughs> everything's
0: fine I mean the thing is that they really everything's don't make fine. they really don't make more episodes of this TV show right like
2: no they don't
0: The these characters do not show up characters who look and sound like them do but
2: when we, um, when we get to season 4 I'm like that is literally not John Watson guys yeah. like genuinely I don't recognize season 4 John Watson as the same John Watson from this show or a John Watson I'm just like that's not my guy John, John Watson, in general, is my dude. I love John Watson so much. I do not recognize season four of BBC Sherlock, John Watson, as John Watson. I'm like, Sherlock, get out of there. He is not your guy. Girl, <laughs> you, you gotta control. run. <laughs> I, season one, John Watson would punch John Watson season four in the fucking face, and he would yeah, deserve yeah. it.
0: The episode ends on a cheesy name drop. Yeah. Mycroft's I love it. Millennial texting-obsessed assistant is like who's that (laughs) and he's like it's sherlock holmes and john watson and then the credits roll
2: i love it and then the song that was my ringtone for about two years starts playing yep it literally was my ringtone for two years the show owned my life yeah it it took over my life
0: all of ours
2: it was my whole life